0: Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had not been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And what shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains, and in dens and caves of the earth. And all these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised since God hath provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not be made perfect. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God.
1: If you know who a guy named John Bourgeois is, you can thank him that we didn't read all of Hebrews 11. Because I said, I think we're going to read all of chapter 11. And he said... I don't think that's a good idea. I don't think people are going to follow if you do 15 minutes of a scripture reading. So, uh, we're in the book of Hebrews this summer. I've been promoting all summer this idea that Hebrews is not a letter, but was actually a sermon preached to a specific congregation. And Hebrews 11 is probably the most famous section of that sermon. If you've been around a church, you likely have heard it referenced a lot. Uh, some people call it the hall of faith. And I hope that it makes more sense to you after our summer in Hebrews. You can see how if Hebrews is, one, a sermon, and two, a sermon that's interested in grafting the listeners back into the story of God's people, why near the crescendo of the sermon there would be this shorthand list of all these historical figures. It's just name after name of people whose relationship with God could be described as deep, deep, robust, loving, even if complicated. So today we're going to try to define what faith is and look at how faith played into these various historical figures and then close with the inheritance that we possess because of faith. Uh, Before defining faith, I just want to name an, uh, an aspect of faith, which is that it's a gift. The Apostle Paul says, "...for you are saved by grace through faith." And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. Not from works so that no one can boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. For good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. That comes from the letter to the Ephesians. So faith is a gift that God gives to us. It's not earned. It's not won. It's a gift. And you can embrace it with gratitude and cherish it every day and embody the good works that are its fruit. Or you can also just take it with apathy and occasional attention. Receiving the gift doesn't mean that you're without agency, but you didn't earn it, you didn't get it, uh, you possess it, and then you, you know, we we steward it in different ways throughout our life. You can ignore it, you can even deny it for a season. but you only possess it because it's been given to you. The Protestant reformers described faith as having three aspects. And when I say aspect, I like thinking of these uh, not as a list of attributes, but aspect in the sense of a structure, having dimensions, okay? So faith has these three dimensions. And they're, uh, these are, I don't know, Latin, so I had to get some help here. So I've, I've written them out phonetically, but it's notitia, assensus, and fiducia. Is that right? All right. Ann Glenn gave me a voice memo with those. So the first one, notitia, is the content or the object of belief. For the Christian, that's the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. So in other words, I believe in God is, the, is this first dimension, okay? And then assensus is a sense of conviction or persuasion towards that object. So, I believe in God, and then I believe God is this other dimension. And then the last is fiducia, which is trust, to rely on God or, or, or whatever you're believing in. in. In other words, I follow God. So, it's like having a notion of God, having... Uh, having the ability to assent to God's ways, and then fidelity to, to stay with God. It, 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 faith has dimension. It's, it's deep. So think of these three dimensions as, as a building that is our faith in God. It's to sense that there's something to believe in, a sense that God is real. It's to feel something in what James K. Smith calls the visceral region of our longings and desires, the gut-level region of cardia. And then it's to persist with trust, with this sense of guarantee, like like we've been given a banknote that can be guaranteed to be redeemed, to have that in our belief. This dimensional definition of faith uh, confronts this idea that believing in God is simply to buy into something with no evidence. That's why I bring up all these Latin words, is to say that faith isn't just just buying into something there's no evidence for. No, there's dimension to it. It's to sense God's presence in the depths of our gut and our soul and our heart and our mind in different ways and to persist toward a deeper knowledge grounded in that trust. Or as Hebrews 11 says, the reality of what is hoped for, the proof of what is not seen. These people in Hebrews 11 possessed a gift. They didn't earn that gift But they experienced it one scholar puts it this way he's talking about all the people in hebrews 11 but he's also talking about humans we are beautiful creatures in which beauty and good are to be found yet we are also jerks hard coarse self-serving vindictive vengeful jerks smugly consumed with our own business yet loving hurting and beautiful in story. So we believe, without God or gods, ask any squirrel in the local park, humans are both generous and messy. This can be dramatized best, not when the script's interest is in making theological point, but when what is portrayed is neither the extreme of evil, nor heroism, nor of love, but just humanity. As if it is, in fact, a world without God. It is best displayed in the story, and the people are ordinary. So faith, then, is not some blind and unexamined view of reality. It's a sense of reality that's rooted in conviction and trust. And these folks display that gift of God in their stories. They believe in God, they believe God, and they follow God. Their belief has dimension and depth, even as many of them are flawed. So let's go through this list, some of them. The first one is Abel. And Abel is one of Adam and Eve's sons who was killed by his brother Cain after God declared that Abel's sacrifice was more acceptable and better. Abel's sacrifice to God was this act of sweet belief. Abel comes across not really as naive, but... Uh, but sweet. Uh, one of my children, who will remain nameless, is just more purely obedient than the others. You probably know which one that is. It's, it's just that child's demeanor to live in, in a sort of gentle peace, not always, but a little bit more effortlessly than others who live in our household. And and I think Abel is kind of like that. He's the first human that we hear of obeying God after the fall. And his obedience isn't some righteous compliance. It's just this sweet trust in God that that God finds very worthy. And then the next character that comes up is Enoch. And Enoch is really interesting because there's very little said in the Bible of Enoch, but there is a lot of Jewish folklore about Enoch uh, in, in other literature. And and some of these folks probably would have known that. And so when the name Enoch comes up, here's some of the attributes that would have been conjured up in the minds of this congregation. Enoch was known for walking with God. And if you're thinking in the book of Genesis about walking with God, it makes you think of before the fall, when Adam and Eve were walking with God in the garden. There's this sense that Enoch had an intimacy with God that other humans at the time didn't have. In the spirit of Eden, he spent his days on this pleasant stroll with his maker. And it conjures this ease and, like I said, intimacy between God and Enoch, something that we don't expect after the fall. And the Bible says later that Enoch was taken away at the end of his life. Does that mean he left earth with his body and his soul? It it, it might, perhaps. And that makes us think that Enoch and God knew each other in ways that he was experiencing God on earth that were already a foretaste of heaven. And it sort of his earthly life might have mimicked his future. So these first two, Abel and Enoch, they represent this faith that looks for God and listens for God and walks with God. It's, it's very sweet and beautiful. But lest we think that there's a list of innocent and sweet people, we get Noah next. Noah was not sweet or innocent, as we might think of Abel and Enoch. Noah, at least later in his life, was kind of rough around the edges. But Noah had this, that gut-level conviction to trust God. He possessed those three dimensions of faith, even with his flaws. He sensed God's voice deeply, and he trusted with conviction in God's call and predictions of this, this future flood and that there was function behind building this ark because God had told him something. Abraham comes after Noah. Abraham's faith embodies the trust aspect. Uh, God asked Abraham to trust him to leave his homeland without knowing what the future would hold. He also trusted God when God gives he and his wife Sarah a long, long, long long-awaited son in Isaac. And then God asks Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, which is just haunting. And Abraham uh, goes along with it until God stops him. So if we think about faith as having these multiple dimensions, that it, it gives more structure than simply blind following, uh, we can see that in the stories of these people, that they had, they had a depth of faith that manifests in, in um, robust ways in their lives. They trust God with conviction to persist, uh, even when things were hard to believe they thought there must be fruitfulness in the future to follow. For Noah, he constructed the ark on dry land, trusting that that flood was imminent. For Abraham, he left his homeland in in a culture that was family and land-based. I mean, he lived in an agrarian culture, so he basically walked away from everything to become a nomad. He also trusted that God was good when he was called to sacrifice his long-awaited son. There's a tension in faith that we futilely try to resolve often, especially us modern people. Surely people looked at Noah and thought, what are you doing, man? Why are you building a giant ark on dry land? uh, In a similar way, I have a friend um, I can't ever read. I'm sorry if I'm going to ruin this for you too, but I can't ever read the story of the binding of Isaac uh, without thinking of my friend who said that whenever he read that story, he thought, I wonder if Abraham was drunk. <laughs> I mean, you read his behavior and it's just like, what is, what is Abraham doing? These people are not oozing rational thinking. Okay, we can, we can acknowledge that. And we might uh, want to resolve that, but we can't. It doesn't make sense that a man would build an ark in the middle of a dry land. It doesn't make sense that uh, Abraham would sacrifice his son. With the rise of, of Enlightenment thinking and continental philosophy and the scientific revolution, the human capacity for reason has never been more impressive. And we see that in innovation. I mean, it, it, the last couple centuries have been incredibly innovative. But with that, I've said this a couple times as we've looked at Hebrews, has been an obsession with rational thinking that I think goes beyond human reason's capacity. Humans are still unwise and often violent creatures, and uh, we discount faith because we think that it's silly or below our reason sometimes. And that goes for Christians, too. Christians have attempted to make faith completely explainable, and in that, we've taken out the dimensions of these mysteries. Some sectors of Christianity have made science and even medicine their enemy. They obsess with apologetics and they require explanations for things that might be mysteries. And on the opposite side, atheists or secular agnostics demand faith be removed from all spheres. And Christians are partially to blame for this development because we've attempted to remove mystery from what we believe in. In order to hang with the intellectual revolutions of the past few centuries, let me give you an example. In the early 17th century, an Irish preacher decided to add up all the dates of the Old Testament and count backwards from Jesus' birth to speculate the date of creation. And that figure came out to roughly 4000 BC. And it was included in a footnote in a free Bible, uh, a free study Bible. That was circulated globally by missionaries in the 19th century. But people started reading that footnote thinking, you know, that it was part of the scriptures. That that was that, that was inerrant. People read that figure not as a speculative footnote, but as as a fact. And nowhere does scripture really claim that the earth was old or young. It, neither. It doesn't really clear up either. It's a mystery. How long was that time that the spirit hovered before the first day? How long is a day when the sun has not been created yet? But by attempting to resolve that mystery, some uh, have discredited their own faith because of obsessing about that. Let me give you another one on the other side. The brontosaurus has a complicated history. Are you clapping for the brontosaurus? We've got a brontosaurus fan here? And it's yet to be resolved. I didn't know this, but apparently... I was told about the brontosaurus in my childhood. I come to learn that in the 20th century, all most of it, the brontosaurus, was not considered by scientists to actually be a real dinosaur, but that it was an accidental hybrid, like a ponysaurus, if you will. <laughs> the brontosaurus now, in the last couple years, is back, if you didn't know. Okay? So... There's hope for Pluto. <laughs> There's mystery when we calculate the Earth's age with science and we interpret Scripture uh, with reason. Okay. I'm not saying that these are futile ventures. It's good to try to try to plumb things and, and try to understand what is Scripture saying. How how old is creation? You know, and it's good to to pursue science. I'm not saying that. These aren't good things. What I'm saying is that uh, sometimes we reduce faith to, as the opposite of reason. Rather than recognizing the fact that both of those things coexist in all spheres. It takes faith to believe that the earth is millions of years old. Okay? It takes faith to believe that the brontosaurus is real and not a confusing hybrid of multiple dinosaur phones found in the same site. When we get entrenched in our beliefs and then try to justify them with reason, sometimes we're undoing the dimension of faith because we're getting obsessed with just the mindful part of it, the reason. Neither the fundamentalist or the scientist is really acknowledging the fact that they're having to believe. And I think when we can... Recognize that that's true in all spheres, it makes it a little bit easier to think, man, there really can be dimension to faith in God. We can really believe in God, and it's not just believing in something without proof. It, it can have dimension. I think on the flip side, I've always loved this quote from David Bentley Hart. He's an Eastern Orthodox scholar, and he writes this about the sort of atheist entrenchment in our time. He says... These attitudes masquerading as, are masquerading as ideas, emotional commitments disguised as intellectual honesty. However sincere the current evangelists of unbelief may be, they are doing nothing more than producing rationales ballasted by a formidable collection of conceptual and historical errors for convictions that are rooted not in reason, but in a greater cultural will. Of which their arguments are only reflexes. Noah was a fool, no doubt, but not because of his conviction in trusting God. I don't think Abraham was intoxicated. His belief was thoughtful, emotional fidelity. They believe that God is real, they stoke their conviction to trust his calls to action as profitable. Their faith is proof of the unseen, and those things may not be resolved by our philosophical arguments. So moving back into the stories, we move on to Sarah. I love Sarah's inclusion in this list because I think we can relate to Sarah. Abraham and Noah listen to God with conviction, though both are flawed. Noah is foolish, and Abraham seems uneasy with God's plans, even as he follows them. Sarah seems humble and and realistic. If you don't know the story of Sarah, she was told by God that in her late age, in her 90s, she's going to have a child. And her reaction is a self-deprecating laugh. She laughs because she's decades past childbearing years, and her laughter is understandable. It makes sense. She's an elderly woman who, with her reason, dismisses the impossible, with a laugh that acknowledges her own incapacities. It has a tinge of insult toward God, too. But part of it is just that she's looking at herself and thinking, I can't, this can't be, this can't be done. She's a regular person with a genuine longing, but also a sensible awareness of her condition. But what's great is over time, she trusts God with increasing conviction. These early Genesis figures... That we hear in Hebrews 11 paint faith with depth. Sarah laughs, but eventually trusts. Abraham is hesitant, but he sticks with God. Noah is foolish and yet follows with conviction. Their performance as moral emblems is not impressive, but they're also not utter failures, they're just simply human. They laugh in God's face. They seem unconvinced at times. But they believe God is the loving creator they can, with conviction, trust. Hebrews actually pauses after listing those Genesis characters. And makes this very point in verses 13 through 16. That they saw from a distance a life hidden in the spirit of God. So they walked, if at times, circuitously, on this path toward his presence. His presence being a real, tangible thing. Verse 16 says, It's like a city that they're trekking towards. Then the preacher goes on after that to recount Moses, who begged God for him to see God's glory. Yet Moses' story is bookmarked by his murdering of a man, and then his doubts manifest in manipulating the power that God had given him. And then next There's this story about Israel marching around Jericho. If you don't know that story, God tells Israel to march around the city of Jericho. And that as they play music, the walls will fall and they will conquer the land. What a strange way for God to give them that gift. Uh, But they trusted it. They went and they played their horns and the walls fell. Rahab, the prostitute whose culture and occupation are fraught with impurity, Trusts in God, and she conspires with his people. Then the preacher starts picking up speed with shorthand mentions of these judges and kings and prophets of Israel. At once, you start to picture this like Hieronymus Bosch-esque tableau, with Abraham bleakly taking Isaac up the mountain, while Sarah laughs through doubting tears, maybe she's doing dishes, then Moses is begging God to see his glory, even as he hides in the cleft of the rock, hiding his own shame from his murderous crime. Rahab, in her shameful garb, is aiding God's spies with this bright-eyed, newfound uh, job and identity with these people. In this, in, this, uh, in this portrait, these people aren't heroes of moral perfection nor are they heroes of immediate redemption. They're just complex humans who fix their eyes on God despite their flaws. And we have an inheritance, Hebrews is saying, much richer than anything they understood as they trekked towards God's presence. We have in Hebrews, if you've been here this summer, this even bigger tableau. Hebrews harkens all the way back to creation, The scene where the cosmos is God's throne room. Then we get Psalm 8 where Christ plunges down to walk the earth and be with his people. Then we get these stories of Israel in the wilderness wandering around. We get the mysterious story of Melchizedek. We get the sanctity of the tabernacle. We get the violence of sacrifice. We get the terror of the crucifixion. Hebrews is is almost like a film reel with stories of creation, fall, wilderness, wandering, promised land, all these things from the Old Testament. And then it's interspersed with these really cool uh, visceral metaphors. You get these images of trail journeys with God where people are trekking along with the Lord. We get sea imagery where believers are in danger of drifting Yet they anchor to the ultimate anchor in Christ. And then all of these scenes that we've been talking about, all these stories, they culminate in Hebrews 11. It's just this dizzying array of stories where people are again, in the words of the scholar I read earlier, beautiful creatures in which beauty and good are to be found, yet also jerks. Hard, coarse, self-loving, vindictive, vengeful, Smugly consumed with our own business, yet loving, hurting, and beautiful in story. And God is loving and close and persistent and giving as these people participate in his story. I've been commending to you all summer that Hebrews is calling us to faith that views life in God as a journey, a pilgrimage. This view makes faith in every hour. Of everyday occupation. Instead of our faith being a worldview that we subscribe to. It's our life. It's our life's work. Hebrews 11 is fulfilling that picture. That portrait is just miles long. An image of wagons and pack mules strung together. Generation over generation. Generation generation of generation. Walking toward... The light, the city of light. Hebrews 11 calls that light a richer inheritance. And many of these folks had a foggy sense of that light. They had a foggy sense of the new heaven and new earth. And they had this unsettling unknown of how God was going to accomplish that restoration. Our inheritance, Hebrews is saying, is much more clear, more full, more rich. That yonder light is more bright and more articulated to us because we see the light of Christ. We're closer to the peak, and we know how the path is forged. They didn't know. They didn't know that their path was going to be forged through the body of Jesus Christ, the trailblazer of our faith. The one who goes before the streams of faith-filled people to suffer the pain of an unknown path back to God. Recently, I've been thinking about the the term God's majesty in more concrete terms. That way of referring to God um, as, as majestic always felt vague to me. But there's just no way I've been starting to contemplate. There's just no way that the one who created a star, you know, who created planets, who forged continents and mighty oceans and magnificent mountain ranges, is not a force of overwhelming intimidation. There's no way that God can't be incredibly powerful and intimidating. And creation points to that. It points to his existence And that's where I think I understand his majesty, but it also raises that question for me. How do I close the gap between myself and that God who makes the burning bright stars of the entire cosmos? And I especially wonder how does that gap get closed when I fail or feel unloved? When we have an acute sense of our own foolishness or failure or flawed character when we lack any sense of friendship human or divine it becomes hard to desire God. It's hard to have faith. It would be a mistake to call these figures in Hebrews 11 mere fools and failures. Some of them were heroic people and some of them were dunces. Hebrews compiles a list of people who possess two traits. First, humanity. They were not all extraordinarily unimpressive, nor were they exceptionally heroic. They oozed beauty and weakness as human creatures do. And not in spite of nor because of their character, They believed. Their faith was a gift from God. This robust sense of his true existence, a submission to hear him, and a conviction to follow after him. What these folks had was their humanity and their faith. What they did not have yet was knowledge of Christ. We have a greater inheritance because we can know how God is going to draw us back to him. They had a much harder task to believe in that distant God without that that proof that comes from his body. I'm sure that some of you are actually quite morally upright people. That's why I've gone out of my way to say, you know, these Sometimes we over the failures of the people in the Bible. Some of them were pretty good. None of them were perfect. But some of them were pretty good. Yet they were lonely and apathetic spiritually at times. And some of you are moral fools. <laughs> and you're embarrassed to go before God. But maybe you're also full of faith. No doubt we can all find one person on this litany That we're able to identify with. And what's important is when you think of who that might be, just think of the fact that they were able to enjoy God without the tangible sense that He is loving and near. And you have that privilege. We don't have to wait until God dies to find out what we inherit from His will, what He's going to leave behind. We have the inheritance. His death gave us his body and blood as gifts that secure in us participation in his kingdom, adoption into his family. We know when we go towards that city that we're citizens. We possess in our hearts his love, we can sense in our spirits his presence. And so because of that, the dimensions of our faith can be higher and wider and deeper than any of these ancestors because we can hold in our hands his broken body and we can see in our mind's eye his resurrection and we can taste on our tongues the wine that gladdens our hearts with the joy of faith. Our greater inheritance is that God has given people over time from the beginning faith to believe in him despite our distance from him. And that's a gift that uh, we don't have to earn and we don't have to do anything to enjoy. Uh, but it is something worth pausing and just reflecting my god, I enjoy this? Or, or maybe I am really enjoying it. And that's why we come to this table every week. Every week we come to this table and it's this moment for us to reflect on oh yes. I've completely forgotten the gift I've been given. And I'm thankful that I can taste and see his goodness once again. Or, man, I have remembered this week. I have remembered this week that he is close. And I'm thankful to celebrate that at this table. So think about those when we we come to the Lord's table. Amen.